0: We are on the doorsteps of Rosh Hashanah, and there is a lot to talk about. There's all kinds of things going on. There's all kinds of ceremonies and processes and prayers and customs and traditions and themes of the day and motifs of the day. There's a lot to talk about, and I want to speak about one angle of this particular day. I think it's probably the most important and central angle of them all. Rosh Hashanah is called Yom Hadin. It is the Day of Judgment. As we begin the Musaf prayers, there's the, maybe the most famous part of the prayer is the Unasana And it talks about how the angels are so terrified and they're trembling and they're saying, oh no, the Day of Judgment is here. There are four times a year the Mishnah tells us, that the world is judged. On Pesach, we are judged as to the quality of the grain of the upcoming year. On the festival of Shavuos, we are judged on the fruits of the tree. On Sukkot, we're judged on the water. And then on Rosh Hashanah, the entirety of humanity, every human passes before God like sheep. When you want to count sheep, you make a small door in the pen and you open it up and you let one sheep out at a time and that is the way the Almighty judges us I'm Rosh Hashanah, every individual. Now if you read this Mishnah you'll notice two things. You have to read it very carefully but if you read it very carefully you notice two things and this is almost opening up the subject but we're going to open up the subject and then focus on one small sliver of it that will hopefully illuminate the entire festival. The Mishnah tells us that in four junctures in the year, the world is judged. There's a global judgment. And then in Rosh Hashanah we're told every individual is like a little sheep that's judged alone. There's two elements, so to speak, of the judgment of Rosh Hashanah. One of them is a global judgment. And there's also an individual judgment for every Person, every person is there, standing before God, alone, and what's going to happen to them over the course of the upcoming year is determined on their individual judgment. Now, our sages tell us that the judgment of Rosh Hashanah is all-encompassing. So much so that the Talmud in the book of Beitz on page 16a at the very top tells us that all your income and all your money and all your assets for the upcoming year, are determined on Rosh Hashanah, with one exception. If a person spends a lot of money on having a very lavish Shabbos meal, and having very lavish celebrations for the festivals, and spending a lot of money that their children should study Torah, and to pay for the, quite expensive as we know, Jewish education, that's not included in the tally. If you spend less on that, you'll have less. If you spend more, the mighty will supplement to what is determined for you on Rosh Hashanah. But everything else, your entire income over the course of the whole year, that's all determined on Rosh Hashanah. So we have kind of like our spiritual standing, our material, financial standing, all that, it's determined Rosh Hashanah. And throughout the high holidays season, all the way to Yom Kippur. Now our sages tell us that there are three kinds of judgment. There's a judgment every year, the annual judgment on Rosh Hashanah. And then there's the judgment that happens to a person when they die. In the day of a person's death, there is another judgment. And the way it's described, they make an accounting of their deeds and the person signs off on the righteousness of the judgment. And then there's one final judgment that happens at the very end of this epic of history. In the run-up to the resurrection, there is what's called Yom Hadin HaGadol V'Hanora, the great all-encompassing judgment wherein the complete sum of all of a person's deeds are judged. So if I do something good, and it has a ripple effect, because I do some, I inspire someone, and they inspire someone else, and they inspire someone else, and someone has a child, and the child has a mitzvah, and the child has a grandchild, and the grandchild has another grandchild, all that accrues to the original person who got it started, who got the ball rolling, who initiated something which led to something which led to something, and all that accrues to their account. And of course, on the flip side as well, if someone does a sin, if someone causes someone else to do something bad, which causes someone else to do something bad, all that accrues to the original instigator. And therefore, at the very end of this era, of this epoch of human history, the mighty tallies it all, and that will determine a person's status in Olam So there's lots of different ways that we could kind of dip our toe into the subject of judgment and how it pertains to the day of judgment on Rosh Hashanah, But what I want to do, I want to study a very troubling piece of Talmud. This is a very famous piece of Talmud, but you read it, and the question is obvious. The question jumps out at you. And it's such a powerful and profound question that it's not only us that are asking the question. You open up the commentaries in the Talmud, and all of them are asking the exact same question because it's such a powerful problem with the Talmud that it just, it's staring right at you. The Talmud in the book of Rosh Hashanah, on page 16b, says the following. On Rosh Hashanah, the Almighty is judging all of humanity, globally, on a global scale, on a universal scale, individually, every individual on their own little judgment, personalized judgment, the Almighty is judging. And the mighty has three books open before him. There's three books. There is the book of the completely wicked people. That's one segment of humanity. Completely wicked. And then there's a second book of the completely righteous. That's a second book. And the third book is the book of everyone else in between. The in-betweeners, the middle class. And what happens? What is the fate of the people who end up in these books? Well, if someone is completely righteous, then right away in Rosh Hashanah, their judgment, their fate is signed and sealed. They're going to live. Lachaim to life. That sounds pretty good. Well, if someone is completely wicked... They too have their fate determined on Rosh Hashanah. Right away, they're signed, sealed, and delivered on Rosh Hashanah. You don't wait to Yom Kippur. On Rosh Hashanah, the completely wicked are signed. Limisa to death. And then the beinonim, the in-betweeners, the middle class, they don't have a final verdict on Rosh Hashanah. Their status is up in the air. Their status is in limbo from Rosh Hashanah until Yom Kippur. They have 10 days to veer one direction or the other. If they are meritorious, says the Talmud, then they are inscribed to life. And if not, they are inscribed to death. So the most important question to be answered for us on Rosh Hashanah and on the whole season of judgment is will we live or will we die? And the Talmud tells us that there's three books. Completely righteous, definitely going to live. Right away, we don't have to wait to Yom Kippur. Right away, it's determined you're going to live for the upcoming. Completely wicked, also, we don't need to wait to Yom Kippur. Right away, you're going to die. Definitely. Well, the banonim in-betweeners, it depends. They have 10 days to figure it out and determine their fate. So first of all, one question that everyone asks is, wait a minute, we made such a big deal uh, the 10 days of repentance and Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur only applies to a small segment of the population. Not the righteous, not the wicked kind of people right in the middle. Exactly the middle class. That's the only people, that's the only group of people to whom Yom Kippur even matters. Because again, the Talmud says that everyone else, the righteous, the wicked, well, that's determined in Rosh Hashanah. So that's one question that the commentaries focus on. But the kind of harsher question, the more difficult problem with this description. In the book of Rosh Hashanah, on page 16b, three books are open. If you read this Talmud, Talmud says clearly, undeniably, that the wicked are supposed to die. And that's determined right away on Rosh Hashanah. What should happen in reality, in real life, is that as Rosh Hashanah goes on, whenever that point of judgment is, which our sages tell us it's during the musaf, during that kind of the afternoon or late morning session of the prayer, that's really when the intensity of the judgment really reaches a fever pitch. You should look around and shul and suddenly all the wicked people should just drop dead. Heart attack, aneurysm, they're dead. That's what you would think. Clear out the bodies and let's get to the kiddush, right? That's That's what you would think. Because after all, it says right away, immediately, it's the fate the seal, determined right away in Rosh Hashanah that they should die. Well, maybe you'll say, you know what? Yes, it's determined that they'll die, but they'll die over the course of the year. So it's not immediate. It's not instantaneous over the course of the year. Well, then we would see or we should see that the righteous have a longer lifespan, have a longer life expectancy. If you look at how long people live, We should be able to clearly see the righteous, people who are very moral, very just, do all the mitzvahs of the Almighty, study Torah all the time. They should have an appreciably longer lifespan than the wicked. That's what you would think. That's what it says in the Talmud. Yet, we know that there are wicked people that live very long lives. And they're wicked by any definition, by any standard. So why is this description of the Talmud? Three books are open! Completely righteous, for life. Completely wicked, for death. In between, okay, You, uh we have to wait to see what's going to happen until Yom Kippur to determine your fate. According to this, according to the architecture of judgment of Rosh Hashanah, as described in the Talmud, the book of Rosh Hashanah, page 16b, the wicked people should be dying a lot younger, a lot faster than they actually do in reality. This is a question that almost all of the commentators on that particular piece of Talmud asked. It's a very difficult question. If we were in yeshiva, perhaps we would assign to this question the following moniker. We would say it's a bomb question. If you go to yeshiva, if you're fortunate enough to ever spend time in yeshiva, and someone asks such a good question, it's called a bomb question. It just explodes throughout the base measure, throughout the study hall. This is a bomb question. Why are the wicked people living? They should all die. That's what Talmud says. Why does reality not correlate with what the Talmud describes? That's the process. The Almighty has three books open before him, and he determines... Who falls into this category? The righteous, they live. The wicked, they die. Everyone in between wait to Yom Kippur. The wicked should be dying much sooner, much earlier, much faster than they actually do in real life. So all the commentaries talk about it, and we're going to go through some of their approaches. So first of all, the Tosafos commentary on the side of the of the page of Talmud, every page of Talmud, standard page of Talmud, on the inner margins, you'll have the Rashi commentary. On the outer margins, you have the Tosfo supplemental commentary. So this is one of the central comments or central commentaries on the Talmud. And on that particular piece of Talmud, in the book of Rashiach, on page 16b, it says as follows. What is the kind of life and death being featured here in the Talmud. It's not life, you're living, your body's alive. Death, you're not living, your body is dead. It's talking about life in the afterlife. Our life here, we like to think of it as life. And what comes afterwards, if there is an afterlife, it's called the afterlife. It's the after party. There's the central party, and then there's what comes next one of my pet peeves is we don't call the afterlife the afterlife. In Jewish philosophy, the afterlife is life. And this world is pre-life. This is the corridor that you are trying to get down to the end, which is the palace. No one would say that when I'm going down a hallway, a long corridor to get to a ballroom, that the corridor is what matters. It's the ballroom that matters. And therefore, that's the Terminology of the Talmud. It talks about life and death. It's not about life the way we describe it. We define it. It's the way the Torah defines life and the way the Torah defines death. The Torah's definition of life is life in the afterlife, where your soul lives for eternity. And the Torah's definition of death is where your soul dies in the afterlife. Your soul's punished for eternity. And how exactly that works, it's a very advanced question, but it's talking about the life that really matters, not the pre-life, not the, you know, the, 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 like they have, uh, like the undercard, like the, when there's a boxing match, this first, you put a bunch of you know lesser-known fighters, and then you have the actual the actual feature presentation. This world is the undercard; it's like the warm-up act before a great comedian. This is not the real life. The, the Tom was talking about life as it really matters. When a person lives a life over here, you get to choose. Am I stamping you know twenty twenty one five seven eight one? Is that going to go towards my account and all my bob? Or not. We have the opportunity to create for ourselves life in the afterlife, in the real life. In the pre-life, we can create for ourselves in the afterlife. And that's what the Talmud's talking about. Did a person give the opportunities that they might gave them? Did a person achieve, unlock, succeed in accomplishing in that year without opportunities? Did you earn life for all eternity as a result of your behavior or not? That's the Tosos answer. It's a totally different approach. It's not just about the, you know, the, will I live 70 years or 80 years or nine? Will I be someone who dies? God forbid, young. It's not that. It's talking about the actual life that matters. It's talking about the afterlife. Now, again, this is one answer Tosos gives. This answer is accepted by other commentaries as well. And there's other answers but I want to give you two more answers. One of them, it's just to reward you for listening because it's so interesting and so Kabbalistic and just incredibly intriguing. You ready? You ready for this? Here we go. The Midrash tells us that our soul is not a single unit such as one thing it's comprised of five basic parts now each one of those parts is comprised of five more parts of five more parts very advanced stuff but on a basic level your soul is comprised of five parts the nephesh is the lowest part and then on top of that there's something called the ruach spirit and then there's the neshama which is even higher and then there's even higher levels than that, the Chaya and the Yechida. Five parts. This is featured not even in the Kabbalistic words. You find this in the Midrash. So this is something which is universally accepted. The, the architecture, the anatomy of our soul is that it is comprised of five components, shall we say. The lowest one is the Nefesh, then the Ruach, then the Neshama, and then the Chaya and then the Yechida. That is a well-known principle. What is less well-known is the fact that each one of us are actually harboring a different breakdown of our soul, meaning if someone has the slightest bit, the lowest level of the lowest level of their soul within them, they are actually still alive by our definition even if a person doesn't have access to their ruach, they don't have access to their neshama, they don't have access to their chaya, they don't have access to their ichida. that's already in heaven. That part of it's beyond them. They have the most minor sparklet of the most minor part of their soul, they're still alive. Even the most minor scintilla of our soul is enough to keep us, keep our heart pumping. Now, a righteous person as they level up spiritually, they're actually pulling down from heaven and into them higher and higher levels of their soul. They're unlocking new features, as maybe we could use this modern terminology. They're unlocking new levels and new features of their soul. So they start off with the nephesh. And then as they do more mitzvos, and as they connect to the Almighty more, and as they study more Torah, and as they do more prayer, and as they do more kindness and generosity with other people, they level up. Slowly, 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 they get their ruach, and they get the many, many levels within each one of these five categories. And before you know it, they can even access their neshama. When a, God forbid, wicked person sins, A sin, by definition, at least the Kabbalistic definition, is an eviction of a certain part of their soul. They're taking like a higher level of their soul, and they're losing access to it. And therefore, the Kabbalists explain is that it's possible for a person to be here and to have only access to the lowest parts of their nefesh, and the soul that they bear is the same soul that the animals have, because the nefesh is an animalistic soul. It's possible for someone to be quote-unquote alive, to be walking and jumping and eating and sleeping and digesting and dreaming and driving a car and watching television and surfing the internet and scrolling on Facebook. It's all possible to do if you have even the lowest level of your soul. And therefore, yes, what happens to the righteous? What happens to the wicked? On Rosh Hashanah, the Almighty determines how much of their soul they're going to get. If you have done what the Almighty is asking you to do, he's going to give you life. What does that mean? He's going to give you more of your soul that you previously didn't have. He's going to infuse you with more life because you've earned it. You're leveling up. And God forbid if someone is wicked, The soul doesn't want to be there. The soul wants to escape. And the mighty sign-seals delivers the wicked to death. Doesn't mean they're completely dead, but they're losing parts of their soul. They have no access to that. And functionally, effectively, they have less soul within them. And that can genuinely be described as they were signed, sealed, and delivered their verdict to death. Which is an amazing insight that the judgment of Rosh Hashanah, life and death, there are these many relative scales, so as many different levels on the spectrum of total life, which is when you have access to the entirety of your soul, which is most likely we cannot, so long as we are bearing our body, we cannot actually access that. Maybe Moshe was able to access that. Adam was able to access that. But us simpletons, we don't have the ability to have prophecy or anything like that, which you would need to have much, much, much more of your soul to be able to access the very high levels of That we talk about the great antecedents, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the matriarchs. Most of us, we cannot actually, we cannot access the entirety of our soul, but we could still be given life. And the harder we work and the more committed we are to it and the more dedicated we are to it, the more life we earn on Rosh Hashanah. Isn't that a beautiful idea? Isn't that a lovely idea? Life and death is not binary. It's not a switch of life or death. There are gradients of life and death. And to the degree that a person has access to more and more of their soul, they are more and more alive. And to the degree that a person loses access to the various components of their soul, they are more and more dead, and that is the fate of the wicked. So yes, to us as humans, seeing the world through our physical vessels, through the tools that we use to interface the world. We can't tell. We look at a person, we're simple people. We look at a person, we can't tell how much soul is in them. The Arizal, the great Kabbalist, he was able to tell right away how much soul is actually in this person. To us, we don't know. It looks like this guy's alive, this guy's dead. To us, only once their heart stops and their brain stops and they start to decompose, that's when they're dead and told them they're alive. And this insight shows us there's many different levels spanning the two. So that's really the introduction of what I wanted to talk about. Cause I want to give you a final answer, which I think will help shape for us what exactly we're trying to do in Rosh Hashanah and will illuminate before us an entire worldview an entire perspective of what it is that we're actually trying to do in our life. Now, this explanation is quite brilliant, but it's something that once I tell it to you, it'll make so much sense that it'll be obvious in retrospect. And I heard this from one of my teachers, uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Berkowitz. So let's look at some of the prayers that we say on Rosh Hashanah just as an introduction. So over the course of the 10 days of repentance, there is a part of the prayer that we say with every Amidah. Every Amidah service, so three times during the week and four times on Shabbos and festivals and five times in your Kippur, we have the Amidah, the Shmon Esrei. And at the very beginning, the first blessing of the Amidah, we say the following thing over the course of the 10 days of repentance. What do we say? Zachreinu remember us for life. Melech chafetz b'chayim, a king who is desirous of life, v'chasveinu b'sefer chayim, and inscribe us in the book of life. And the final clause, lemancha elokim chayim, lemancha, which means for you, on your behalf, elokim God, chayim. That last little bit. It's a great mystery what it means. So remember us for life made sense. Okay, God's judging us, living, who's gonna live, who's gonna die, remember us for life. And then we tell Melachbachim, you're a teen who's desirous of life. You want this as much as I do. Inscribe me for life. and write us in the book of life. And that last little bit doesn't really make sense, at least initially, what does it mean? Lemancha elokim chayim? What does it mean that we want life, for you? seems to indicate that there are different kinds of life. And we want a life that is leman chalokim cham. We, we want a life that is for you, O oh God. But what does that really mean?s Needs further explanation. So let's go back to the three books. There's three books that are open. The completely righteous, completely wicked, and everyone in between. Completely righteous, get life. Completely wicked, get death, and everyone else have to wait until Yom Kippur. But wait a minute. The wicked are all living long lives. So we had a variety of answers. We said, well, it's uh, for all of my Like tosu says, it's for all of my It's for the afterlife. Alternatively, there's different gradients of life. Let's assume for a second, let's assume that it's referring to actual life and death the way we define it, not the way God defines it, the way we define it. Suppose that the wicked actually die at very high numbers, unnaturally young. Suppose that was actually true. What else would happen? Let's imagine a world. It's a counterfactual world. Let's imagine a world in which The righteous, they get life on Rosh Hashanah. The wicked, they get death and they actually die. They keel over, they're buried in the ground. They die much younger. The life expectancy of the righteous is 100 years old and the wicked, it's 35. Suppose that was the world that we lived in. What would happen? So I'll tell you what would happen. All of us, would lose our free will. If you saw so clearly that the righteous are getting life and the wicked are getting death, if you saw that and it was undeniable, well then, free will is tampered. We always talk about the barbell. The side pulling us to good and the side pulling us to bad always have to be balanced. There was to be balanced. Because otherwise, the purpose of the world cannot be fulfilled because there's no free will. So think about it. If we assume that life and death means actual life the way we define it, and actual death the way we define it as well, that is not possible for a different reason. It's not possible because then free will is corrupted. So here's the answer. There are two kinds of life. There's actual life, where a person actually lives in the world as it was intended to fulfill the purpose of creation, to make free will choices. And then there are the wicked, whose fate was determined Rosh Hashanah that they're going to die. But they're kept alive, not because they themselves are alive. They're kept alive only for the sole purpose of not impinging, not infringing upon the free will. Of those who are actually living. When you are alive, you can exist in one of two ways. You could actually be alive, be a human who was created for the purpose of making free will choices, or you could be alive only to facilitate the free will choices of the humans who are actually alive. Let me explain. Rosh Hashanah is the anniversary of the creation of man. It's not the anniversary of the creation of the world. It's day six of creation was the first day of Tishrei, and that is Rosh Hashanah. Now, if you look at the story of Genesis, it's quite clear that man is created last. First, you create you know, the, 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 the light and the dark and the, the, the land and the, the water and all the animals. And at the very end of creation, day six of creation, well, then we meet man. Says the Talmud, why is man created last? Because man is qualitatively different than everything else that came before him. And the Talmud furnishes an analogy. If you want to make a huge party, first you order order the, the hall and you get the caterer and you get the flowers and you prepare the food and only then do you invite the guests. The purpose of the party is the guests. Everything else must be done ahead of time. Says the Talmud, the purpose of the world is humans. Everything else must be done ahead of time. So the constellations, the land, the water, the animals, all that is part of the meal. It's part of the feast. It's part of the banquet. It's the things that are needed to facilitate mankind. And therefore, they are all created ahead of time because we are the purpose. Humans are the purpose. And our sages explain to us, humans are the purpose, because the purpose of the world is for humans, this curious hybrid of body and soul, of spiritual and physical, this entity, this unusual entity, comprised of such opposites, bound together by divine decree, this human has free will. And this human can choose to accept God's dominion? or to reject God's dominion. No other thing can do that. Not the animals, not the angels, not the animals who are below us, so to speak, spiritually, not the angels who are above us spiritually, not the trees, not the variety of birds and fish and all that. None of them have that same options that we do. None of them have free will. This is a very advanced subject, and we spoke about this in the past. In previous, before Sean, we spoke about this as well. But just very basically, the Almighty controls all. But there's a difference between a dictator and a king. A dictator rules whether the people, the populace, the constituency wants it or not. God wanted to be a king. God wanted to create an entity, i.e. a human, who has the choice to accept or reject God. And when a man accepts God, that is independent verification of God's dominion because man has the same option to reject God. And that is the purpose of creation. And everything else is there to facilitate those dilemmas, those free will choices. And that's why God created man, And that's why God created men last. Rosh Hashanah, this is when this all comes together. This is the day that God created man. This is the day where man can coronate God, and therefore it's it's a celebration of us. We can reinvent ourselves on Rosh Hashanah, but it's also a celebration of God's dominion, of God's kingdom, of God's reign, because only we can do that. We say in the Musaf prayer, we can give God. A crown of glory. No one else can. Everyone else is subject to God. But only we can coronate him. So there's two kinds of creations. This is, again, universally accepted by all the commentaries, by the... Ramchal speaks this out at great length. There's two kinds of creations. There are billions, perhaps trillions of species in the world. Billions and trillions and quintillions of galaxies and stars and angels, innumerable angels and animals and tree. All that is one kind of creation. It's an arena. It's an environment. And then there's man, a totally qualitatively different kind of creation who bears free will. And the purpose of creation is man. Everything else is preparatory. You prepare that ahead of time, man comes last. Everything else is facilitatory. It's there to facilitate the arena, the environment in which man can make free will choices. Those are the two general kinds of creation. There's everything, and that's the setting, that's the environment, that's the arena, and then there's man, and man is the goal. Man in the arena that's what the money wants. Will man be swayed with the free will or sway himself, maneuver himself to accept God, to coronate God, to give God, to give God the crown of glory? Or will man turn away from God and reject him? And here we have this Talmud that tells us something very fascinating. There are some humans that, even though they are human, they're Homo sapiens, they're still part of the arena. They're like the animals. They're like the birds, like the trees, like the galaxies, like the angels. Yes, they're breathing. Yes, their heart is pumping. But really, they're not there for any other purpose, aside from being the arena in which those who are actually living can make free will choices. They're the Rishayim, they're the wicked. And their fate was determined that they should die. But they were kept alive. They died because they no longer are part of the purpose of creation. But they're kept alive to be the arena, to be the environment, to be the setting in which humans can have free will choices. Because again, if they all die, they're up dead, the free will choice is corrupted. An amazing thing. There's three books that are opened. The righteous are given life. They are part of the humans, the atom like humans, the humans who came all the way at the very end. They're the humans who matter. They're the humans who can live, who can make choices, who have to wrestle with life, who have to contend with this madness of being a human. Those are some humans, the righteous. And those are the wicked. And they stay alive as well. But they stay alive and they're dead. Because you know what? A rock is also part of the environment in which the righteous live, the humans live. And just like a rock is dead and inanimate, but it's still needed because that's part of this environment in which humans live. This other prison is also dead. They're still breathing. They're still, in our eyes, they look alive. But in God's eyes, they're part of the furniture. Their sole purpose of existence is to facilitate and create the free will for those who are actually living. nidmu. Our sages tell us, Scripture tells us, that there are some people who are like the animals. And on this level, it means quite literally so. They're like the animals because vis-a-vis, the question of purpose of creation, they have the same role the animals play. They're only alive to not tamper and... Disable and destroy, not the smoke detectors, to not tamper with disable, destroy the free will of the actual humans. So what do we tell the Almighty? Remember us for life. You are desires of life. Write us in the book of life. What kind of life do we want? We want life for you. I don't want to be alive only for other people, other humans. I don't want to be the furniture, the environment, the setting. For other people, I want to be alive for God. I want to be a human who actually matters. I want to be like Adam. I don't want to be like the the birds and the trees and the fish and the galaxies and the angels and the animals. There's two kinds of humans. Humans who are alive and humans who are just not dead to not encroach on the free will of others. Perhaps we can use the following analogy. There's the set of life. And on this set, There's a nice environment, there's the background, and then there's the actors who matter, who are part of the game, they're playing part of the game of life, and there's all these extras, and the extras are there just to facilitate the environment in which the actors act. We want to matter, and we tell the Almighty, we want to live for you, that is what we want. We want to wrestle with the challenges of life, we want to struggle, we want the highs and the lows of contending with all these challenges. Three butcher opened. What kind of human will you be? Are you going to be a player? Are you actually going to matter? Or will you be an extra? Will you be a fulfillment of the purpose of creation? Or will you be there just to not tamper with the free will of others who are? The Talmud tells us, Tzadikim b'misasam kruyim chayim, the tzadikim, the righteous, in their death are still deemed alive. And the Roshayim and the wicked, Bechayim, when they're alive, Kareem, Mason, they are deemed dead. When a righteous person's dead, they're alive. That's when they're beginning their actual life. This is all the pre-life. This is the prelude. This is the preparation. That's dies. Tzadik is still alive. The rasha, the wicked, is living here and they are part of the furniture. They don't know it. They are part of the furniture. And there's a big difference between someone's actually living, someone's actually in the arena, actually partaking in this game of life where the mind says, I'm giving you free will, what are you gonna choose? They're like Adam. Everything else is there to facilitate that. And there's also humans who are there to facilitate that. Now I think there's a question that a lot of people are thinking right now. Well what happens when to the wicked people who were rendered part of the furniture on Rosh Hashanah. Is it possible for them to catapult themselves back into the arena of life? So I'm pretty convinced that the answer is yes. And I want to speculate something with you all today. Listen to this. I'm going to tell you something that we say multiple times every single day. And on the surface, it's quite inexplicable. But I'm going to suggest an approach. In the Amidah prayer, we say three times a day, four times in Shabbat and festivals, and Rosh Chodesh, five times in your Kippur. The second blessing is called Givuros, the Almighty's kind of greatness or, or uh, awe, and we say the following. Bar, you are mighty. And then we say, you're mechaye mesim. You resurrect the dead. And then we say it again. Mechaye mesim. The mighty resurrects the dead. Me, kamoch bar was umidemoch melech meimis umechaye. You resurrect the dead. Venemachel, lahachayos mesim. You will resurrect the dead. Baruch ata shabbos to you Hashem. Mechaye ha mesim. You who resurrects the dead. And this blessing, resurrection is mentioned five times. Now if you examine it, only once is it talking about the future. Only once is it talking about an event that's yet to happen. You will resurrect the dead. The other four times, it says that God actively resurrects the dead. I haven't seen any dead people come alive. What does it mean the mighty is actively resurrecting the dead? Maybe now we have our answer. When the wicked are judged on Rosh Hashanah, they stay alive the way we see them. In God's eyes, they're dead because they're just part of the furniture. But the mighty, in his abundance of mercy, is always resurrecting the dead. He is always allowing those people who became part of the furniture, who became like the animals and the environment, they're part of the extras on the set of life, they can, once again, be reanimated. The Talmud tells us, this is also in the book of Rosh Hashanah, page 32, the Talmud says that we don't say Hallel on Rosh Hashanah. We don't say the prayer of Hallel, of praise of God, on Rosh Hashanah. Why not, says the Talmud? Because you have the Almighty sitting on the throne of judgment and the books of the living and the books of the dead are open before him. This is a very serious time. The books of the living and the books of the dead are open before God. And we could sing in those circumstances? Can we sing? Can we have praise? No, it's it's way too solemn and serious a time to sing. So we had one Talmud, Rosh Hashanah 16. It talks about three books the righteous, the wicked, and everyone in between. And now there are more books featured in Rosh Hashanah. We have the books of the living and the books of the dead. Now, how exactly these books relate to the other books and everything we talked about hitherto. It's a great mystery. But again, if you read this Thomas, wait a minute, the books of the living, so there's multiple books of the living, and the books of the dead, so there's multiple books of the dead, are all open before God. Apparently, God is judging not only the living, but also the dead. Now, the way we understand that, dead means you're buried in the ground. And that causes us to raise an eyebrow. Wait, if someone's in the ground, why are they still being judged? But perhaps, now we know the answer. Perhaps when it says the butch of the living and the butch of the dead is not t- talking about the people who are actually dead and turned in the ground. Perhaps it's talking about the people who are functionally and effectively dead because they're the furniture, they're the arena. And the be judging them. Maybe they can be resurrected. Rosh Hashanah is a time for judgment. Everyone's judged. The living are judged. Which one of the three categories, which book will you fit into? Completely righteous, completely wicked? Will you lose your ability to influence the world? Will you lose the atom like quality of being a human who matters, who has the opportunity to fulfill the purpose of creation? Or you'll be dead and you'll just be part of the environment. You'll be a set. You'll be the extra on the set. You're, you're, you're part of the atmosphere, the arena in which other people live. But even the dead, and yes, their heart's still pumping. They're still alive. Even the dead, they are once again revisited each Rosh Hashanah. And maybe their fate will be that they will be resurrect them, he'll resurrect them, bring them back alive, once again, thrust them back into the arena, give them a chance to be like Adam, to wrestle with life, to make choices, to be alive, for God, not just for the free will of others. I think if you look at the Talmud, the way the Talmud describes what we should do in Rosh Hashanah, it's about repentance, it's about prayer, it's about charity. Chuva, tefillah, tzedakah, they are the themes that help us get life. Perhaps we can't suggest. When someone does chuva, repentance, prayer, pray to God, tzedakah, these are deeds that a person does when they say, I want to matter. I want to live not just part of the environment. I want to live for God. And that's what it's all about. Both the people who are alive and want to stay alive and don't want to be rendered as part of the furniture and the people who are the furniture, the books of the dead are open as well. They want a resurrection in Rosh Hashanah and both of them have to petition God and tell God, I want in. Zachreinu haim remember us for life. You were desirous of life. This is why you created the world. You created the world for life. What life? A very specific kind of life. Not the life of the birds or the trees or the angels or the worms or the fish or the galaxies or the inanimate objects. A specific kind of life. Inscribe us in this book of life, but don't just give us any ordinary life. We don't just want our heart to be pumping. We want to matter. mancha, Elohim Chaim. We say that again and again and again. Because we don't want to be there to just service everyone else's free will, if we demonstrate that we want to matter, I want to be like Adam. This is when Adam was created, and this is a chance where I get to petition God to go before Him and say, "I want to matter as well." The Mighty Ones scribe us in the Book of Life. May we all be so fortunate to be included amongst the Sadiqun Kumu, the completely righteous people who are inscribed in the Book of Life. And you know what? If we've had some rough episodes in our past, this is a time of resurrection as well. Maybe we were rendered dead or still alive enough to once again come back in. May we all have our Tzivakhimatova written, inscribed, and sealed the book of life. And may we all have an amazing and fabulous and splendid Rosh Hashanah, uplifting Rosh Hashanah, meaningful Rosh Hashanah, and an amazing year. Upcoming, as always, my email address is RabbiWolby at gmail.com.